You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. once again for the Mudbugs for playing us in. I appreciate it very much. And I am Poser, your host of the Sneaky Good Podcast. And with me, as always, to make me sound slightly smarter than I actually am, it's my producer, Chris. How's it going there? It's going. Going well. Read my my son's some uh, Beverly Cleary this evening, so. How is he enjoying? Is it me? God, how? Uh, oh man, I screwed up that joke. How's he enjoying? Uh, is it me, God? Uh, it's me, Margaret. God, nuts. <laughs> uh, we're not doing that one yet. Uh, Mouse in the motorcycle. Shocking. Uh, yeah. Well, see, because we were talking about this before. Like, I was thinking that it was. Uh, I got my um, book mice confused. Mm. It, it's Ralph S. Mouse and not Stuart Little. Correct. With Beverly Cleary. That's just. Oh, there's just too many uh, literary mice out there. I think the Margaret book's a little too existential at this point, so, you know. Yeah, probably he doesn't really need it for uh, what he's going to – the changes that he'll be going through <laughs> right. are not on point. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a full house today, so coming to you from Canada, who whose favorite Beverly Cleary novel is uh, – probably Ralph S. Mouse – is Seth. Buongiorno. And coming to us – from just south of the Mason-Dixon line, whose favorite Beverly Cleary novel is clearly the Ramona books, is Jake. Hello. And I now have started this off with two references that neither of you got, right? <laughs> yeah, that's why I just said hello. I didn't really want to... I didn't want to expose myself too much. Mm-hmm. A, I read them as a kid, but B, when you have kids, that's one of the things you reread. There are um, there are certain books you actually end up reading more than once. Like some stuff are, is just for your own childhood and will never be read again. But some things I think are kind of eternal. And Beverly Cleary, definitely on the list. Yep. Uh, I'm trying to think. I have a copy of my copy of Mr. Toad. Mm. That's that a good one. To me, is sitting on the shelf, and my my daughter's just shy of chapter books. She's so close that we can taste it. And I want to start reading her that because you know, it was really important to me as a kid. I was a big Mr. Toad guy. Yeah. And then also, and this will get me in trouble with everybody um, out there in radio land, but I have the original uncle Remus stories mm. that my mom read to me because my mom is from the deep South and her mommy read it to her. And so I have those uncle Remus stories, which I don't know if I'll read them to my kids because I, I don't know if I want to do all the because it's actually with the accent if you've ever read them. Oh my! It's written. It's in pidgin English. So yeah, yeah. So I might. I haven't decided yet. What are the Uncle Remus stories? It's the Song of the South. It's the uh, band Disney movie. Ooh. So 
it's you know Brer Fox and Brer Bear and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it is most famous for its depiction of the happy slave, which is yeah, gets you in a little bit of trouble these days. Which is why it's never coming out of Disney's vault. <laughs> So yes, now that we've talked big time about Beverly Cleary, which is something you will get on no other SB Nation <laughs> podcast. We can, we can virtually guarantee it. I, I virtually guarantee it. Either that or your money back. No, we will dive straight into this weekend's Florida game. And how much fun was that? Just to tell you. Yeah, I didn't... Uh... I usually have a seat there, like I think we all do, you know, when we're not at the game. I say that like I've ever actually been to a game. But no, I I have a seat on my couch in the same spot that I always watch every game. And I wasn't there at all on Saturday night because I was standing the whole time in my basement. (laughs) It was more tense than I wanted it to be. Absolutely. It's probably the most tense 14-point win you'll have Mm. ever. In a way, I felt this game was closer than the Texas game, even though the final score didn't reflect it. Yeah. Because in a way, I never really felt Texas was going to win in the second half. But Florida, they had the lead early in the third quarter, and I for sure thought Florida could win that game. Yeah, because you feel like, well, eventually the offense is going to stutter for an extended period of time because that's what always happens. And then. It just didn't, and it hasn't yet the whole season. So hopefully that continues. I wasn't worried about that because, I mean, I've been riding the whole nothing is stopping this offense train the whole year. And I was just worried that when Florida scored, I guess, what, three straight times in the first half, and then you come out for the second half, it's like, okay, well, maybe they'll make an adjustment or two, you know. And then when they drive down again and score, it's like, Ooh man! At this point now, LSU has to break serve, and that was kind of the worrying part. That it was like, I, like I thought the offense was going to keep scoring. The worrying part was, well, now they have to find a stop in there, and it's like, well, you know, what happens if Florida just gets the ball last? But once, once they took the lead for thirty-five twenty-eight, I thought that was it because I just I didn't think that the offense was going to be stopped. And I mean, they, I think they punted once, but they punted on the Florida half of the field. So even that was. They set them up, pinned them deep when Florida tried to drive down seven. No, I'm with you because I thought – I wasn't nervous because I thought at the half, Florida had played a perfect first half. That was as good as they could expect to play. Everything went right for them. They, everything that they could have possibly wanted happened, and the game was just tied. But they were getting the ball first. And so you're looking, okay, is what adjustments is LSU going to make? what adjustments is Florida going to make. And Florida immediately came down there and I think it was a 10-play, 80-yard drive, scored a touchdown to go up seven. And that's the moment I was nervous because you're right. That was when it went from, oh, even if the LSU offense scores on every possession, we need the defense to make a stop now. And right now it doesn't look like it can happen. And to their credit, the next two drives were both three and outs. And I think that's – what put the game away, not really put the game away, but the defense showed up after that first drive in the second half to make their mark on this game. They only allowed seven points in the second half, but those two three and outs happened at a critical time. It gave the offense a chance to take the lead back, 
and give LSU control of the game again. Yeah, especially since that you talked about that first drive coming out of halftime. You know, we talk about it, you know, halftime adjustments and stuff like that all the time. You know, everyone does. And like you said, Florida played a perfect first half. But we're like, okay, you know, they're going to go into halftime. They'll make their adjustments. It'll be good. No problem. And then Florida came out and they just rolled in that first drive. They absolutely destroyed Stingley. I think there was three catches, maybe even four catches on Stingley. Um, yeah, and that was disturbing because it looked like they were targeting Stingley, which is yeah. the first time that's happened all year. And so it was like, oh, well, maybe this is going to be, a, you know, whatever, a, just a back-and-forth shootout. And then they started getting to the quarterback. And then the coverage was excellent on, on pretty much the rest of the game. So, yeah, I agree. That, 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 that drive looked like it was really going to keep the game kind of where it was going in the first half and then when when they shut them down two straight times two three and outs that was it because because like you guys said the lsu offense is just not going to get stopped now jake in the first half the lsu defense kind of sat back they were only rushing three and it allowed Mm -hmm. florida a lot gave them time and that's how they got those drives going and in the second half it seems they started. They kind of ramped up the pressure. They started with four, and by the end of the game, they bring in five, six, like they were at the end of the game. Do you think that was a strategy by Aranda to slowly bring on the pressure, or do you think that was the plan was to bring three and it didn't work, and they kind of went into panic mode? I don't know if it was panic mode, but based on just what we've seen from them, kind of all year, and with the way you know they played in this game, I. I that, I think that's their plan. They want to rush three, and they want to see if they can get pressure with three or four. And in that case, if they can do that, then it's gravy because the secondary is the strength of the team. And so that's I think that's the strategy. Is But the problem was that they couldn't get pressure with three. And I think, I think one, for me, it's – I think by now, you, I, think in, I think they waited too long to make the adjustment. I also think that when you've had the injuries this team has had up front, I don't know about, you know, kind of assuming that a a banged up front three or guys who are, you know, second stringer, so to speak, can get the pressure is necessarily the right strategy. I also think when they rush four, Kaylon Chason is not a bad player, but I stretch imagine. I think he's very good. Even he's really good against the run and he can get to the quarterback at times, but you know, he's not Arden key. So I think that's another Part of it is I think they've kind of used him as like, oh, well, we can rush four because we'll bring him and he'll get to the quarterback. And that just isn't really happening with any real consistency. And so I, I don't think I don't, I don't know if they wanted to like panic mode because, look, I mean, there was still like, you know, 27 something minutes left in the game. But I don't think it was a strategy to bring the pressure on late. I think they knew that if they continued to just try and rush three or four, that the pressure wasn't getting there and that. Trask was just, I mean, he made some fantastic throws. Some of it wasn't just on LSU. Some of it was he just made some flat-out awesome throws, and Kyle Pitts looked like an NFL tight end. And so I think, yeah, I think they knew that they had to make the adjustment, and they did. But I I do think it was probably too late, but better late than never. And it was still, I mean, it, it was, you know, with lots of time left in the game. I mean, it was with, like, Florida had, like, five drives after they scored 
to start the second half. No, I don't think it was uh, the long-term kind of plan, but it was good that they made the adjustment before it got too late. Now, Seth, the kind of a quarterback guru, were you impressed by Trask, or do you think that was just LSU didn't get any pressure on him, so anybody can pick anybody apart if they're given enough time? Yeah, well, I mean, I think obviously the times where LSU rushed three, he, I mean, he's he's good enough to make you pay if he's not going to get pressured at all. And, and you know, the thing with the rush three is a lot of times it's it's all that interior rush, like kind of working from inside to out rather than two defensive ends. I mean, sometimes it is, but rather than like two defensive ends are trying to like kind of pin their ears back and, and go meet at the quarterback. But I was I wasn't kind of impressed by Trask. I thought he was pretty good. The interception at the end was a boneheaded play. You know, looked like he thought maybe the receiver was going to break in, and then he throws it in, and and then the receiver breaks out. And and there were some good plays, like you know the ones on Stingley. They're good coverage. Like Stingley is is obviously like that. There's two like you know intermediate in breaking routes to uh, Pitts, who obviously has a bigger body than Stingley, but Stingley's on him all the way. And, and Trask put it there on the money twice on the in-breaking routes. And then the two back shoulders were really nice throws. Tough to, tough to kind of deal with a back shoulder throw if it's on the money. And then the third, the fifth one was that slant where, you know, I think it's Van Jefferson takes that outside release. And after you've been given up the two back shoulder plays as a cornerback, I don't care how good you are. You're going to overplay that route. So then, you know, uh, Stingley opens up to the outside and Jefferson makes a nice move to cut underneath him for another completion. So I don't think it was all like Jefferson, oh, they're pick, you know, they, he didn't have a good kind of five plays in a row outing. I think he was good on those five plays. I think Trask was better. Um, yeah. I, you know, get, yeah, exactly. What I think was interesting about Trask is he went 23 of 39. But I think the LSU secondary had nine pass breakups and one interception, which means of his 39 passes, 33 were on target. <laughs> there was only six times where he just threw a bad pass. The LSU, either his receiver made a catch or the LSU defender made a play on 33 of his passes. And that's a, I mean, that's a ton. Uh, Trask looked really, really good. And yeah, I think something when he identified he had a little bit of a mismatch for a while before LSU made an adjustment with uh, Pitts and Stingley. When something works, you know, the Spurrier uh, idea, if something works, keep doing it until the other team shows they can stop it. And on the flip side, LSU kind of did the same thing with their running game. Florida was dropping guys back in coverage saying, hey, your running game can't beat us. So Clyde Edwards-Hilaire just torched them. I mean, just absolutely destroyed the Florida defense. Yeah, every time they ran it, from from what I saw, every time they ran it, it was because Florida stayed with two safeties, and that means you don't have enough players in the box. And this, these are the situations where LSU needs to take advantage of teams who are going to do that to them, because now all of a sudden in the box, you don't you don't have the numbers advantage. You know, LSU's played for since eighteen ninety three without a numbers advantage in the box. So now that we have it, let's use it. And, you know, I thought the blocking was absolutely fantastic. I mean, one-on-one blocks, 
that are that are clearing the path for for Clyde, and then he took advantage of it. He's 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 growing on me. He really is growing on me. Yeah, no, I mean Edwards Hilaire averaged ten point three yards a carry. Ty Davis Price averaged thirteen yards a carry. He only had three of them, but still. And let's be honest. The LSU offensive line, which came into the season as the big question mark before the season started, that was the part of the offense we were worried about. It wasn't Joe Burrow that we were questioning. He didn't totally come out of nowhere this year. We, we kind of saw some of it coming. It was the line we were worried about. You know, it was this offense will be good if the line can give them time. And the line has been great. Jake, did you have any issues with anything on the offense? No. That they put up a, without without kneel downs, they put up eleven point three yards per play against. I mean, even with the worst perception of the Florida defense, a top twenty unit in the country. I mean, it was it was flawless. There's there, there was nothing you could you can't play offense better than that. Like I mean, that's and I think I said that at some point like during the game. It's you know. As much as like as I absolutely believe LSU's turned the corner on offense as a program and is going to continue doing this past this year, like enjoyed this because offense doesn't get played better like than this. Like it's LSU's quarterback throws for twelve yards per attempt and has twenty-five touchdowns with three picks and completes eighty percent of his passes. Its leading rusher averages six point three yards per carry. Its leading receiver is on pace for like 1300 something yards it's top two receivers have combined for 16 touchdowns ever i mean i i, I kind of butchered the stat when i put it out on twitter i think um but like with the exception i think i think it's eight now that i kind of checked it with it like eight times that one team has scored on that lsu's defense has given up you know a score the offense has come back and scored right after and like a handful of those are either end of half or end of game scores and another one or two are garbage time scores so every time another team scores on them they score right back and they score just basically every time they touch the ball i mean it's offense doesn't get played better than this it just it really doesn't i mean there there's there's not like it's I mean, you watch them on on saturday night and it's they didn't turn the ball over they ran it the offensive line was joe burrow didn't get touched we all agree the offense is awesome, and that's been the story. But there's still the complaints out there about the defense. Florida had 10 drives in this game. Of those 10 drives, three of them were three and outs, including two critical ones in the third quarter. Five of the 10 drives went for 10 or more plays and over 70 yards, which are only left two drives in the middle, one four for 32 yards and a punt and one eight for 75 yards for a TD. Seems like a very boomer bust defense. How are you feeling right now about our defense? I think the what Jake was talking about at the beginning with the getting after the quarterback is probably the biggest factor. And a lot of it, again, it's by it's by design. I think probably fifty percent is by design. Just not wanting to rush three. When they rush for it, it's often really just one edge rusher and then and and then three interior guys so that's by design too and then the other thing is yeah like it's not Arden Key Chason is not explosive he really's got no moves i mean it sucks to say cuz we really thought he was going to be 
a hell of a player this year, but he's got no moves. He's not fast enough to just beat tackles around the edge. And so when you live in this world where you're going to play with one edge rusher, that edge rusher has to be special. 2016, that edge rusher was special. He's not this year. And so he's going to have to, you know, Aranda's going to have to make some decisions. He's either going to have to go to a true four-man four front with two end guys, you know, whether it's Definity, and then we saw Micah Brooks make some really, really great plays Saturday. So maybe, maybe it's Micah Brooks, maybe it's Divinity, whoever it is. I think that's going to be a decision that he has to make because they, they, Chason can't do it alone. Uh, he's just not good enough right now. Jake? I agree. It's that it's, you know, it's basically burn bust. It feels like all year it's either they get teams to go three and out or they give up 75 yard touchdown drives. Um, that, that just seems kind of, I mean, like, I feel like the defense, we feel a lot better about the defense if they just kind of held teams to field goals like once or twice a game. You know, the thing is, like, the big issue, like, when we look at the two LSU defenses this decade that, this one has been negatively compared to, which is 2013, which is the big one, because that was the one year LSU also had a great offense. And then 2015, which was the Kevin Steele year, those defenses got gashed. Like, they gave up big plays. 2013 one gave up big plays just in every which way because they weren't super talented. And the 2015 one gave up big plays because they would have coverage busts seemingly like every game. This one does not give up big plays. Like, Florida had one play of 25-plus yards on Saturday. That was it. The problem is, I also gives up 21.2 points per game, which is around like back 30s in the country, which isn't great, but still 21 points per game with this offense is plenty fine. They're top 20 in opposing opponent yards per play. The issue is that in the three games LSU's played against Power 5 teams, so Texas, Florida, and Vandy, those three teams are 47% on third down against LSU. That, that's really bad. I mean, that, that, for that's perspective, everybody, the only team in the SEC worse against Power Five is Arkansas at fifty-one percent. Yeah, that's that's just really bad. It's death by a thousand cuts. They don't give up big plays, and they get teams into third and five, third and six, and sometimes even third and long. But they just can't get off the field, and yeah, so I, like, I and that's that's the issue. Really, is it's. If they could get off the field one or two more times in the red zone, and so you're holding teams to field goals, that's eight points right there. So that's a score. Or even if it's on some of these other drives, you know, teams get going. That is basically the issue because it's not, you know, that they're getting gashed with big plays or anything like that. It's just they cannot get off the field. Yeah, you, I feel you can tell early in a drive whether LSU is going to give up points. Uh, like the Florida drive and the – speaking of – you know, long drives. LSU after those first three and outs in the second half, the fourth drive that Florida had twice, Florida had a third and long of 10 plus yards inside their own 20. And both times they converted. And eventually it became a very long drive. Now that's the one that ended in a stingly interception in the end zone, but you kind of feel that it's like LSU has a breakdown early on in the drive. And you're like, once they convert, it's almost, oh, this is when LSU is going to give up a 60-yard drive where the other team gets into the red zone. And when the other team gets in the red zone, we normally give up points. But what's weird is 
LSU currently in the SEC ranks third in yards per play, 4.64 yards per play. The only defenses ahead of it are Missouri and Georgia. Right now, on a per-play basis, LSU is doing better than Alabama and Auburn and Florida, who are defenses that are far more lauded than LSU right now. Well, so, I, I hope it's 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 something where you put enough teams in third down, and it hasn't worked so far this year, but hopefully going forward, you put them in third down enough that the, the third down statistics regress to the mean, especially given LSU's talent. And they can get off the field more. Because, now, we obviously, agree, like, it'll take more than just saying, well, let's do what we've been doing and we'll get them off the field. You know, we talked about some of the adjustments that we think need to be made. But at the same time, let's, I, I, for me, I'm just hoping. I'm hoping that it's, a, it's just a glitch. And, uh, and they'll be able to kind of recalibrate themselves on third down. Because you can't. Can, no, I, can I think you you're really right. Wait, like what's what's rep, what skills are replicable? We, you know, we like, we'll talk about turnovers aren't really a rep, replicable skill. Exactly. Or like exactly. red zone offense and defense. It's kind of random. It's important just to get to the red zone, and teams that score a lot just tend to be good offenses. Not like you have a particular skill. Right now, third down, it just seems like. I think you're right. It's a glitch in the matrix right now, and you can't just whistle Dixie and say, "Oh, well, it'll take care of itself." But on the flip side, I think it kind of will take care of itself, or it, it should. And that's a dangerous way to say it. Yeah. yeah. You, you, I mean, you could go a whole season without it taking care of itself, and then next year they could be amazing on third down. But let's hope right. for, for our sake that it, it, it gets fixed in two weeks, basically. To me, it's like I just have a hard time seeing teams like keep picking up third and sixes and sevens versus LSU for the entire like rest of the season. Like, I don't know. I mean, again, it'd be one thing if it was they're if they're constantly, you know, in third and short because they give up, you know, kind of big plays or whatever. But like, it's like, I, I just cannot see like for a whole season that LSU is just going to fail in this way to get off the field on third down. But yeah. I, th- I do think part of it is injuries. I, I know in some ways, that isn't always what people want to hear, especially because LSU's had so many injury problems over the last couple of years that at some point people kind of get tired of hearing it. But you know, when you look at pass rush, some do it. Well, you know, it doesn't help that, you know, Michael Divinity, who isn't a pure pass rusher, but rushed the passer pretty well for LSU last year, has been hurt. doesn't help that their best interior lineman, Richard Lawrence, has been hurt. Didn't help that their second best has been hurt and just came back on Saturday and played pretty well. Well, I, well, I do ultimately think that Chason probably isn't the guy that they need or want him to be. This is also his first year coming back from a major knee injury. So maybe there's a chance that he kind of gets more better as the year goes on in terms of how healthy he is. And he had, he has had his own injury issues as well. So I, I, I do think that's, part of it as well. Like, they, yeah, they, as as you guys both said, they need to make some changes. I think they need to try rushing more guys earlier in the games and on earlier downs. Because to me, it's, if, you're, if your defense doesn't give up chunk plays and if your issue is you're getting kind of nickeled and dimed, well, if you rush guys on first or second down and get teams in like second and long or third and long, you're probably going to be set because you don't give up big plays. Teams can't nickel and dime be on third and 15 or third and 10 or 11 and 12. So I think that that's something that they'll have to 
move to and look towards doing. I, I do think there is some that's like, even if this defense is not the one, and it obviously isn't the unit we thought it could be, it's not basically one out of every two third down against Power 5 teams bad, in my opinion. Yeah, my only worry is that it becomes something mental. And I think that's the one thing where stats kind of be the only way it becomes replicable is because it becomes a thing. Like there's that here we go again nature of it. Sort of like a couple of years ago with Miami and the turnover chain. They just felt they were gonna make a turnover. And college football is a game played by 18 to 22 year olds. And 18 to 22 year olds are erratic human beings. And sometimes I think just believing that something is going to happen causes it to happen. And right now, LSU believes they're going to give up third downs. And I'm just hoping they don't get caught in that negative feedback loop. If they keep doing the things they've been doing to force third and longs, things will be fine. As long as they don't just get caught up in the, oh, and then we give up a third down conversion. Thanks, Chavis. I think Jake makes a good point about rushing more on early downs. So, you know, they, they play a style where the, 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 there's three down linemen and then one kind of stand up, you know, the, the position that Chase on played, the position that Arden Key played, and one stand up, you know, he's called an outside linebacker in the system, but really he's more of a you just the stand up defensive end. So the three down linemen are between the tackles. And so you play that on, on early downs to stop the run. And, you know, you play in the SEC, and that's what happens. In the SEC against most teams, is they're going to run on early downs. What I think could be interesting for Aranda is him saying, look, the offense that I'm playing with is putting up points. So that means that the offenses that I'm playing against can't just sit there and run the football the whole day. So I can maybe get out of this tight front for a bit play you know he likes to play under which is just a regular four-man front with two ends like i was saying maybe okay he doesn't love it as much against the run but for, a they're not going to just all of a sudden if they play an under front give up 75 yard rushing touchdowns every two plays and b it would help them a lot against early down passes and kind of put the offense the offenses they play against even in a bigger hole than what's going on now so I think that's the early down stuff I think is super interesting to look to look at going forward. I mean, he can stay in it, and they'll stop the run like they've been doing for the most part. They, they stopped Pirine in his tracks for pretty much the whole game. I think he had one run, and it was because he broke a tackle in the backfield. So, like, yeah, they'll stop the run, but do you need it as much as you have in the past because the games aren't tight anymore or the game shouldn't be tight anymore? And that is something that will bear watching as we go forward. And as we talk about going forward, right now, LSU has climbed to number two in the country. Yay. Is that a jinx? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. It's not a jinx, but I did not ask for this again. You know, like I, I really didn't ask for number <laughs> one and number two in the country to be Alabama and LSU. Will be three? I'll, I'll even take three. I'll, like, I'll settle for three. Just. Well, Georgia did not help us out there. Because Georgia was one of the teams ahead of us in the pecking order. <laughs> and the the perfect kicker missed a short field goal in overtime. And you knew it was bad when the announcer started talking about how reliable he was. <laughs> yep. One, I, I as one to gloat, 
uh, which I can be, um, I will point out that, like, I, I did call Georgia losing one completely stupid game this offseason. Like I said, they're just going to lose one really dumb game. And I even said it probably will be some dumb thing to South Carolina, like 13-10, where South Carolina has a punt block for a touchdown and a fumble recovery for a touchdown, which, while not exactly happened, they did have a pick six for a touchdown, and Georgia turned the ball over four times. And I'm just saying, Florida has now played an emotional game against Auburn. They've now played an emotional game at Tiger Stadium. And now they have to go on the road to play South Carolina in the dreaded three-day slot. Could South Carolina be looking at back-to-back upsets? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone want that action? I don't know. I think the the laws of the football world say that Will Muschamp can't have good things happen to him (laughs) in successful. (laughs) I close reporting this out like after like week one when they lost to like North Carolina. Will Muschamp punted on like fourth and less than five in Georgia territory multiple times again, (laughs) and they still won. Basically, this game was Will Muschamp dragging Kirby Smart down to his level, which. Honestly, based on the way Kirby Smart played, actually it might not be that much of a gap. <laughs> and yeah, like, said, we're just going to play a big, dumb football game. And this was just such a big, dumb football game. I mean, Kirby Smart can recruit, but man, he gets caught into some outdumbing challenges. <laughs> and man, that it is not the dumbest game South Carolina has played this year. I, I agree. The North Carolina-South Carolina game, if anybody had to endure that, was one of the worst in-game coached games I've seen all year. It was like each coach was trying to do something more stupid than the other. South Carolina, Georgia was just kind of your garden variety dumb. I I, I don't know. I mean, but man, it was dumb. going for a 57 yard field goal. (laughs) What was that? What was that? There were three options on the table and that was the only one he shouldn't have taken. I I hate to say it, but punt. (laughs) Even punt. And then Georgia, which gets the ball down to, like, the 37-yard line, which is basically, in, even though he missed, still within Blankenship's range. And then running two plays for no yards. And, and a 5 yard penalty. And then a 5 yard penalty. And then there was one other one where Kirby called timeout. I think this might have been, like, overtime. And, like, Kirby called, like, a timeout when South Carolina was about to make, like, some – Super, just really dumb play. I, I, I can't recall. I can't, I can't recall which one it was, but it was it was just like. I think there was one that they were refusing to go for it. And he called timeout and it like gave Will Mushamp a second chance. To, yeah, yeah. Hey, exactly maybe I should true. put my guys on it to go for this, and he still didn't. Like Will Mushamp was committed to you know to the dumb it, call. It, might, it but, might have been before the field goal where it was like. He, they just like had ran, they like ran the guys out there and the play clock was running down and it's like, okay, so like they'll get a penalty and then they'll just punt it or whatever, which then he just takes the time out for some reason. This was, this was like a a truly, truly dumb game between frankly, just two dumb. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I like that we can talk about how stupid guys who make like millions of dollars are, but it, that is the fun of having a podcast. I have no responsibility. Um, <laughs> Georgia will bounce back, I think, this week against Kentucky because Kentucky's not very good. But I'm telling you, like South Carolina, while poorly coached, 
I really don't think Florida is going to bring the same kind of effort they brought against LSU against South Carolina. That is that screams trap game. Right, but South Carolina just might not be good though. Yeah. And that's that's true. Uh, no one is doubting that. <laughs> no one is doubting that. <laughs> and they're probably going to be playing a third-string quarterback. Yeah, so... No, I mean, it's going to be a very dumb football game, but I think Florida can probably escape with a very dumb win. Uh, speaking of very dumb, Pruitt uh, tweeted out that... Uh, well, he told reporters who then tweeted it out that the only way he could beat Alabama is if they did onside kicks and never punted. <laughs> Do it, coward. Yeah, I want to see it. it. Do you want to see it? I want to see it. I, I want to see it, yeah, absolutely. Because you know I, what's funny? Like, at the end of the day, if if none of it works in the in the in like the final box score, the, the score is not going to be that lopsided because Saban's not going to go in and get a 1,000 possessions because you onside kicked it all the time and, and run up the score to 100. He'll beat you by 49 nothing, and that'll be it. And then you'll go around – to your next opponent, and that's it. So there's no point in not trying it. He's not going to yeah. embarrass you because you tried it. And let's be honest, you could lose 49 to nothing playing straight up. Well, they will lose 49 to nothing. <laughs> like, 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 straight like, up. Upsets happen in football. Like it's, it's not that like upsets are impossible. It's like the events that have to happen for Alabama to not win this game is basically either, as Billy said, team-wide food poisoning, or... Tua Tongovaloa somehow morphs into like Jamie Howard and throws just like three pick sixes in the first quarter. <laughs> hey, no, this is a rivalry game. Tennessee raises their game for Alabama because this is, I can't even say that with a straight face. I'm sorry. <laughs> Never mind. So it's like, like, okay, like, so either you punt the ball to Alabama and they have an 80 yard touchdown drive, or you go for it and they have a 50 yard touchdown drive. What's the difference? Like, they're going to score either way and they're going to do it in two plays because they're going to throw it over the middle to Ruggs or Judy or Waddle or whatever, and they're going to catch it for 10 yards and run for 60. So, <laughs> you know, like, why not? Well, they are going to be short Devontae Smith, and I'm sure that's going to play big yeah. time. Oh, oh, great. Now they only have one, two, three. Like, like four game-breaking talents? Yeah, yeah, four. Like Waddle, Ruggs, Judy, and, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure I'm forgetting someone, too. The entire backfield, yeah. <laughs> so so that is why LSU will be playing the CBS game against Mississippi State and Mississippi State's terrible they have not looked good this year at all and I know a lot of the analytics community really like Joe Moorhead they really hyped up that hire and he has been pretty terrible is there buyer's remorse in Starkville already Oh yeah, they should have taken a different Penn State assistant. Shoop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, they're bad, and I thought, okay, you know, really I mean, bad. I kind of made excuses like, oh, well, Nick Fitzgerald, he's not really the, he's not really a Moorhead quarterback. Oh, Tommy Stevens, wow, look at this guy, he's wow, what a quarterback this guy is, and then he just sucks, and Moorhead sucks, and I was wrong about the whole damn thing. Yeah, because like last year, Mississippi State had a defense that was truly amazing. They had a great defense, and he inherited that. So you're kind of like, oh well, maybe they just you know have the structure there where this is a good defense and they can plug and play. No, it was the guys. They're all in the NFL, and this is the defense now isn't terrible, but it's not good. 
and the offense has made no strides. And if anything, it's moved backwards and state is really a bad football team. And I cannot believe this is the CBS game. I look, I'm not complaining. I don't get ESPN. ESPN doesn't exist in Canada. So anytime I don't have to stream LSU, I, I take that. And I've been very lucky this year that there's been a lot of LSU games on, on Canadian television because our sports channel has picked up some ESPN LSU games. So I am counting my blessings. It's about five weeks in a row that LSU is on TV in a different country. And I love it. Hey, well, you know, the Acadian, we, we travel. Canada and Louisiana, it's the same people, just went in different directions. <laughs> Let me say, as the uh, native Mississippian on the podcast, all my extended family still in that state are, are all Mississippi State alums or fans, uh, except for the rogue uncle who I'm related to only by marriage, who is an old Miss alum. I, I've always kind of you know rooted for state. Uh, when I wasn't rooting for LSU because that fandom I inherited from my father and growing up in Baton Rouge from the age of five. So I don't like the fact that, that states down the way they are, because if nothing else every year, I need them to beat Ole Miss. That could still happen because Ole Miss is still terrible. Right. So let's not rule that out. <laughs> but, but, but I'm a little more worried about it this year than previous ones. So Yeah, this is, it, it's not a good, Normally, you can kind of construct, okay, this is how the upset happens. Yeah. You, you know, when you're a fan, you're like, okay, we're the better team. We're going to go there and we're kick their ass. But in the back of your head, you're thinking, okay, well, this is the thing I'm worried about. You know, if this happens and this happens, then State can win. I I don't see how State can win this game. And that's a weird thing to say. But I really don't see what their pathway is to success. LSU is going to score 40 points because this is just what they do now. They score 40 points every week. And Mississippi State hasn't scored more than 28 since September 7th, which was week two. And that was against Kentucky. So, and they just scored 10 points against Tennessee. Yeah, I, just, I don't see it here. Yeah, I, they lost to Auburn 56 to 23. And I can they score like 23 points to like, yeah, a lot of that was in garbage time. I mean, we're looking at – look, that's the kind of game we're looking at. Now, they have a good win. They beat Kentucky. And the Kansas State game was competitive. You know, they lost. But but Kentucky's not very good either this year. They, they looked okay there, like, for the first four weeks. Like, they, they were yeah, they did. Kansas State. They looked they like they'd Kentucky. be feisty. That Auburn game just took everything out of them. They've just been in a spiral since then. And then, yeah, they lost to – now, it's been Auburn than Tennessee, but that counts as a spiral. You lose to Tennessee, you're yeah. stuck. They had 267 yards of offense, and they turned the ball over three times. Oh, I, mean, my I, just, God. I don't, I don't know, like what we're. I mean, Kylan Hill only touched the ball 11 times. Like that's their best player. Like they ran 58 plays, and their best player touched the ball on 11 of them. But to make Chris feel better, since he has. Uh... Family that's Mississippi State, and I don't want to pile on against State. They <laughs> they still play Arkansas, who I think is the worst team in the SEC, and they play Abilene Christian. They have three wins right now. That gets them to five, which means that the Egg Bowl could be their chance for bowl eligibility. The dream will live. Without, so po- great. 
Without pulling an upset, Mississippi State can still win six games. Yeah, okay. I feel better now. Yeah, see, I'm here for you. Because uh, LSU, A&M, and Bama are going to take them for a ride. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And, I mean, they're probably going to have a new coach next year. Because I I just, I don't, I, two-year head coaching terms rarely happen. But, A, this just seems just a horrible fit. And there's already talk that he's trying to get out of there to go to, like, Rutgers. So, you know when that's happened. Yeah, I think the fit thing, I think, is the most important part. Obviously, the fact that he's not winning is, is, is actually the most important part. But the second most important part is the fit thing. He just doesn't – I don't know where he's from originally. I know he's only pretty much only coached in the North. And this is a country of Mississippi State. And it just doesn't seem like he fits in. I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't – I don't know the guy, obviously, but it just doesn't seem like a fit if you're not winning. He's from yeah, he's from Pittsburgh, so he's a he's a Yankee. And I mean, like, I mean, Dan Mullen's a Yankee too, but but he but he with with, with he all melted. Like, the best way to describe Dan Mullen, I don't even mean this in a bad way, really. Dan Mullen is an a hole, and <laughs> that stuff fits in, in the SEC. In the SEC, like you can be a bad, not necessarily the right. The, like you can be a Yankee or you can also be a great culture fit if you're kind of an a-hole and Dan Mullen is and so I think that and also he just won a bunch so that also helped but also Winning the house. Florida the being at Florida for all those years yeah that's is a big part of it too I think no I don't think there's any chance that he gets fired after this year no yeah even when it's five but he might be looking to get out. He, he's looking for his escape hatch, and I don't think Mississippi State would be sad to see him go. No. Yeah. Boy, is that depressing. Let's go on to question and perk this up a little. Sorry, Mrs. about you. Oh, I did. Okay. <laughs> okay, Seth did. The rest of us were really nice. We got nothing against you. You're not Ole Miss. You're clearly the, the Mississippi school we prefer. <laughs> Christopher Douglas wants to know, Best players ranked whoever wore number nine. And he didn't stipulate whether he's talking about LSU or sports in general. Well, Micah Brooks has already in one game with a sack surpassed Joe Burrow. <laughs> no, no, he hasn't. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's it depends on the sport because Ted Williams was number nine. So Ted Williams is pretty easy for baseball. And Gordy Howe wore number nine for hockey. Gordy Howe. Yep. And, and he and, beats uh, uh, Maurice uh, Richard Rocket. You know, yeah. you know, the Rocket wore number nine as well. So two of the greatest hockey players ever. And it's not even a conversation because Gordy Howe uh, wore it as well. So those two were easy. Um, basketball, I would like to point out that Bob Pettit in the pros wore number nine. Very nice. He, he wore 33 at LSU, but number nine for the St. Louis Hawks. So Bob Pettit, baby. <laughs> greatest LSU athlete to wear number nine. So Joe Burrow, that is your standard. I want you to be going into the crowd and talking crap to Bob <laughs> Pettit. <laughs> See how that goes for you. Um, but and football soccer, and soccer, Ronaldo, phenomenal. So the Brazilian one wore number nine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's, yeah. That's that's an easy one. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo for one year wore number nine. Whoa. Suarez wears number nine and he hurts people. And I like that. <laughs> uh, but you look at football. I mean, it's uh, Drew Brees. I mean, really? Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's Drew Brees. Probably. I mean, 
McNair wore number nine, but you know, McNair was really good, but he's not like, Oh my God, I saw Steve McNair play. I think, I think Drew Brees is the greatest number nine. So right now, Ellis right now, Louisiana is enjoying the two greatest football players. wear number nine (laughs) ever at the same time. So enjoy it. People. Uh, I thought, I mean, look, Hey, Grant Delphit, his two seasons wearing nine were pretty damn good. Pretty darn good, yeah. 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 Right now, Burrow is not established as the best number nine on this team. (laughs) (laughs) I get get confused with those two. Like, I guess because it's Delphit used to wear nine, and they're, like, similar. Like, sometimes I think Burrow wears seven for some reason. I, I, I I get confused by it sometimes. I get that. I always feel that quarterbacks wear seven because I was a little kid, and Burt Jones will always be a so and he weren't. But who, who are who are the other nines? Uh, you know, in LSU history on the football team, I, I'm blanking so much right now. Yeah, I can't even think of anybody. I, never, I mean, I guess I could get you know. This is where I'll I can go into our roster history, but no one is popping up into my. Nine. Yeah, I know. Hang on, let's see. You're about to come up with some names though when you go find this roster history, and I'm I'm excited for this. Yeah, well, hang on. It's not. There we go. There we go. Let's go back to 2016. Let's see what we get there. And we'll sort it. Uh, 2016, Ricky Jefferson. So nothing big there. And then. Oh, God. I hate the new website. You can't just. Sorry. Early, early two set. It was pretty good. Yeah, early two set. number nine. Yeah, that's right. That's a. This is tough. Yeah. Like, yeah, like you okay. just. Start going through it. Um, Ego Ferguson, more number Jordan Jefferson, of course, greatest quarterback in LSU history. Ah, okay. Only QB to beat Nick Saban's Alabama twice. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. So we go back in time. Yeah, early Doucette was number nine. You already said that. So. Is it mostly an offensive number? Like, number nine is mostly an offensive number. Yeah, right. now it's no, Jeffrey guy. Henderson, more number nine. Jeffrey Henderson, more number Oh, number okay. He was pretty good, you know, as we – and if I go back a little bit, I'm like yeah, – let's go back to the 80s. Let's see what we get. Did Debbie Henderson have a game where he had a rushing touchdown, a passing touchdown, and a receiving touchdown, or am I misremembering? God, that might – I wouldn't doubt it. How about that? Right, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm on his, like, stat page right now, so I'm looking this up as we speak just because I think it would be cool to know. Uh just out of curiosity, on the 1958 team. Oh, they don't list my numbers. Boo, they don't go back they that far. They didn't have numbers in 1958. Yeah, they didn't have numbers back then. They just uh, said, hey, you, the one with the crew cut. <laughs> Slugger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everybody was slu- named Slugger. Uh, <laughs> Chief. Okay, it doesn't, it doesn't appear like David Henderson did have that kind of game. God, doesn't it feel like he did though? Right, so. uh, he, uh, he did. He did have rushing touchdowns in his career, receiving touchdowns. So, yeah, I'm gonna go with the uh, with my options. I think I'm gonna go Devery Henderson. Yeah, I'll go Devery too. Yeah, I can't. I can't think of any over Joe. Yeah. Which one? You're going with Henderson over Joe. Oh no, Joe Burrow. Clearly, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're saying other than Joe. Other Burrow. than Joe Burrow. Gotcha. Yeah, it's the yeah, non-Joe maybe. Burrow option. We've established Joe Burrow is number one. We last week we pretty much established who's the greatest quarterback in LSU history, which we will dive into more as the season moves on. But 
we're we're past best quarterback in LSU history, and <laughs> well, that's, that's <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right. Okay, I'm not saying anything. Knock on wood, Alabama. Yeah, he has to complete it. Well, like, he, he's it's sort of like gymnastics. He has to stick the landing. So, you know, he's he's doing pretty good right now, doing some flips on the uneven bars. But I need to see. Uh, I know, at the moment, it's the best quarterback season in SEC history. Well, no, Cam. Um, yeah, Cam was pretty great. Pass, but passing-wise, just purely passing. I mean, these numbers, and I know you kind of have to adjust it for, like, and there's no easy way to adjust for era, you know, and you have to take But still, he's got the highest compl- – this right now is the highest completion percentage in college football history. He's at 79.6%. This is the highest. 218.1 pass efficiency rating is the highest in I mean, the, the three highest are all taking place right now this year it's burrow hurts and tua and then last year it was two and kyler murray and then i mean this is the problem is that like the best are all in like the, the seven best are all literally in the last four years it's like it goes baker baker kyler tua to a Hertzboro. Yeah, so you start I mean, to wonder. Still, like, it's hard, effect. but still. I mean, if, if he's ranking number one in all of these, you're still the best of your time period. And if you're the best of your time period, then you get it to be in you know discussions about. Great. You know, I, I would think, and I'm sure there are stats on it somewhere, and I'll, I'll try and look them up for, for next time, but. His average depth of target has to be higher than a lot of those guys on the list. Because, you know, they they don't don't run a ton of screen passes. They don't run a ton of, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, running back screens or wide receiver bubble screens or tunnel screens, something like that. These are all downfield plays. So I think it's not the Bill Walsh offense. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like they're throwing the ball down the field and he's still at 80%. He has. I, I'll try to see if I can find this really quickly because I saw I retweeted something from PFF this morning about here it is. So highest accurate accurate pass percentage on throws ten plus yards down the season since 2017. So you have Kyler 2018, Tua 2018, Baker 2017. They're all around 55 percent. Joe Burrow is at 65% on throws 10 yards down the line, uh, past the line of scrimmage. So he's he's doing it. Good. Yeah, it's really, really good. Even the, I mean, some of like the more like adjusted pass yards per attempt, he's at 13.6, which is a hair below Tua and then a bit below Hertz. It's ridiculous where he's at right now. He's first in pass efficiency rating in the country. He's first in pass completion percentage and leads the SEC in completions, completion percentage yards, and passing yards per attempt. It's a staggering level of play right now. That it, it doesn't get. I mean, he's he really is in control of the offense in a way that you just you don't see. Like it, that, that kind of stuff just doesn't happen. Okay, next question. Burrow is awesome. Max Toscano wants to know. Is LSU capable of holding Alabama below 45? Well, they're surely capable of it. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Will they? I'm not, I'm not sure. And I'm also not sure Alabama's capable of holding us below 45. 
Um, I, mean, I guess I guess I don't know. They could hold us to forty-two, but like, if they force turnovers, then yes. I mean, that seems like a cliche kind of way of looking at it. But if LSU can force like two turnovers, then yeah, I think they can hold them below forty-five. So I can, I mean, obviously that that offense is is fantastic as well. But you know, when they last year when they came to Baton Rouge. The offense didn't do anything. Our offense didn't do anything. But at least, you know, they, they didn't score 50 on us. No, two didn't play. They kind of held them to, I mean, they held them to 30. So it was like, all right, they did held them, hold them a little bit. Two was set, two was worst passer rating. Two was two, like his sec, the worst it was, was the Georgia game. But his second worst passer rating of the season was against LSU last year. He, only had seven yards per attempt. He had 295 on 42 pass attempts. He was below 60% completion. He threw his first pick the year to that point. These numbers were worse than even against Clemson. So the only worse was the Georgia game where he clearly was, like, extremely banged up. So, yeah. I don't know if LSU's defense is as good as it was last year. Probably not, but uh, it's heck of a lot better on offense. So they scored three touch. They scored three touch. They scored one touchdown with like five minutes left in the game. Before then, they had scored three. And they scored two in the first half. If they hold them to four, if they if they hold Alabama to forty five, that's going to be like a three point game because I, I I think they're going to hit forty. The issue would be like yeah. if the issue would be if they gave up like fifty plus. A, I think they should be worried about us scoring 45 points. And B, of course we can hold them under 45. The question is, will we? And I don't think Alabama's offense is quite as prolific as LSU's. And I don't know. If I was a gambling man, which I am, I would say LSU is going to hold Alabama to under 45 points. I would take that bet right now. Yeah, hold them below 45. I mean, 45 is a huge number. I'll take it. I'm not saying we're going to win, but uh, yeah, let's worry about that then. Feel a lot better about it. Yeah, I think a high-scoring game suits us. A low-scoring game suits them. Yeah. All right, Jacob Hibbard wants to know: What is the bigger throw, third and seventeen, or Burrow to Chase versus Florida to go up two scores? Are we talking like like the throw, the, the Texas throw, and the play by the quarterback is? It's it's one of the best throws in the history of LSU football. The the design, I guess, on Saturday night to free up Chase was more important than the throw itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that was schematic. Like Chase was so wide open, one of us could have hit him. Yeah, and that speaks to Chase's ability to get that wide open. And that, that's great because I don't I don't know how often they ran that. You know, switch release to get the pick the pick on Chase's guy. You know, lining Edwards Alaire up on the outside. Once it, I mean, it's it's fantastic. So once they move Edwards Alaire out to the outside, there's not a a cornerback out there, so they know it's man coverage. And once it's man coverage, now I I could be remembering wrong, but I'm pretty sure they look back to the sideline. And Joe Brady calls the play. It's man coverage. What do you like? It's man coverage. Picks, rubs, you know, screens, that type of stuff. 
And so it's just a really nice call to free up Chase from an inside alignment down the sideline. No, but I do think you're right. I, I think the th- third and 17 uh, pass against Texas is not just a better throw and a better play. It's more impactful from like a narrative standpoint. That's when Joe Burrow truly announced his presence. That's the biggest throw of the season so far. I don't think it's close. Just if you take the totality of everything, that Texas throw right now is when you're doing the the Joe Burrow Heisman reel, that's number one. Yeah. And I just think if they do, if he doesn't make that throw to Chase, um, forgetting about like, and let's pause just for the sake of it, say LSU punts. They probably wouldn't. I think they probably could have held Florida if need be. If they needed one stop, I think they probably could have made one stop. I don't think they could have made one stop against Texas. And then we're probably going into overtime. That The the Burrow throw to Jefferson really finished that game off. Well, I mean, while it did the same with the one to Chase, I, I do think LSU probably could have forced a stop there at the end if they had to at 35-28. Okay, Peyton Hotstream, who's at Issa Me Bruzy, wants to know, who does number two work for? I'm gathering what? from the silence that some people on this podcast have not seen Austin Powers. I mean, I have, but I mean... Not gonna fall into it. I'm trying. To... <laughs> Jefferson is really good. He's moving on up. What do you want out of me? <laughs> yeah, no, not bad. All right, yeah, Jefferson had a. Sorry, <laughs> we're not talking about Jefferson right now. <laughs> Go ahead, Seth. I would say he. Didn't, I mean, like he keeps coming up with these acrobatic catches every week. There's the touch. There's the seam against Texas in the end zone where he kind of, it's a back shoulder in the end zone. He kind of flips his hips and, and gets around. There's the one down the field, I think last week where he dives and gets it. And there's this one, it's kind of a low ball um, on his back shoulder in the seam and he reaches down and gets it this week. He's, he's, he's special, man. He's on pace to pass Wendell Davis for second most catches in a single season in, um, in LSU history. And if LSU played, like, 14 games, like if they made the SEC championship game, he'd be right there with Josh Reed. He's going to pass Davis for second most, in, on pace to pass Davis for second most in yards. Not going to pass Reed there. He's, he's five touchdowns away from the most by an LSU wide receiver ever in the season. Five. I mean, he's going to get that in, like, two weeks probably. Probably get three next week, you know? So... Well, if you say in two weeks, he really only has to. Well, I guess no. That'd be Mississippi State Auburn. So yeah, Kenny, he, he could light that up. Yeah, I'm not going to couch expectations of this offense anymore. Like, I'm, I'm riding. Yeah, I'm on the train now. We ain't stopping. It's the point where it's like I'm like, it felt it felt like with him, we always like tried to like I don't want to say like explain it away, but like like kind of couch it, but like ah, oh, he's not the most talented guy on the team or the most explosive. He's the slot guy, and it's like no, man, the dude just puts up numbers every week. The numbers don't lie. I mean, he puts up, like, six catches for 110 yards and two touchdowns every week. There isn't a wide receiver in the SEC performing better than him. It just is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Except for maybe Jamar Chase. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you still could make an argument he's not the best wide receiver on his own team. Okay, Michael Phillips wants to know, what's more likely, Joe Burrow saying, 
I've got a fever, and the only prescription is more cowbell. Or grabbing a state fan's cowbell and shoving it up their rear. <laughs> is Burrow going to trash talk Mississippi State, really? Uh, it's more likely he trash talks them than threatens them with violence. But uh, um, I, I think this is going to be one of his more chill games. Then again, he hasn't really had a chill game yet. So, I mean, this is a guy who trash talked Vanderbilt. So, <laughs> I'm not going to rule it out. I don't know. Coach Coach Joe was being spicy this morning when he was when it was what is he was they asked about when Mississippi State blew out LSU, you know, two years ago. He's like, somehow they pick one game a year to get excited about, it, and it's always LSU. So, I'll, I'll make sure to have him ready. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> that was, I guess, a bit of a. You know, oh yeah, he remembers that because Mississippi of, State that was one of his first really big losses because. Yeah, what's his first? As, 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 the, as, the, yeah, as the as the official head coach and Mississippi State, I mean, they pounded him. I mean, that 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 boded ill at the time, and so I, I think Orgeron will always have a special place in his heart for Mississippi State, and I'm I don't think they like hearing that. Jacob Hibbard wants to know: buy, sell, hold. Joe Brady is at the very least promoted to co-offensive coordinator next season. Who's buying? Oh, totally buying. I, I, I would say 100% he's going to be the absolute offensive coordinator. I think Ensminger yeah. is going to retire. I thought Ensminger is going to retire before this year started. A uh, title, I don't know, but they're not letting him leave. I don't, I, I don't know what, what title or like how it's all going to work out, but there is not a chance in uh, – snowball's chance in hell that they let that guy leave after this year. So whatever way they figure yeah. to work it out, yeah, they'll they'll figure that out. Yeah, it'll be like a Aranda situation. Like, there's no way they let him leave, and he'll be the OC. And we, he already is the OC, but he'll get it in title. He's the favorite to win the Broyles Award. I, I this is probably something they've talked about already. Like, I mean, I'm sure they know that the dude is going to be getting interviews for, uh, you know, offense. I mean, offensive coordinator positions. Absolutely, um, I wouldn't like. I wouldn't be shocked if, like, FCS teams or, you know, like, maybe, like, low-level kind of FBS teams have kind of thought about, heck, take a flyer on him as, like, a head coach. Yeah, I think the only way he leaves is to take a head coaching gig. And, honestly, the places that would offer him a head coaching gig, you probably don't want to take – you probably don't want to take that. You'd rather be offensive coordinator at LSU than – Yes, no, like, though, again, who knows what the title is, whether it's – co-offensive coordinator, whether Ensminger retires or goes back to being like, I don't know, tight ends coach or like an assistant head coach or something. But yeah, he's, he is not, they're not letting him go. Okay. Richard Pittman, who still has one of my favorite Twitter handles. I like beignets wants to know (laughs) best Muppet show Muppet and best Sesame street Muppet. Uh, Swedish chef for me. (laughs) That's a good call. And probably uh, either Bert, Bert or Ernie. They work as a pair. We'll count it in this one. That's that's fair. Jake. Um. Muppet. Maybe Gonzo. Mm. Uh, probably go there, and then Sesame Street. Uh. Yeah, I guess Bert as well. Probably. I do think there's a difference between best Muppet and your favorite Muppet. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah. Because, uh, um, but I do think the best Muppet is probably Rolf, who is the most dynamic Muppet. He's the only one who could be a comedic, dramatic lead and play in the band. So yeah. Rolf is a triple threat, and no one else truly brings what he brings to the table. But let's not lie, Animal is the only correct answer. Yep, that's mine. Forget about your Swedish chef. I mean, Swedish chef is funny, <laughs> but still, Animal. <laughs> animal, Animal. <laughs> Sesame Street's a little bit different. You're trying to uh, teach people stuff. I think Big Bird is such a really cool creation when you think about it. It's designed to be like a four-year-old who's just asking questions and doesn't know things. And so he learns as it goes on. I think Big Bird is kind of an inspiring character. I know that sounds weird, but I was a kid when, you know, Mr. Hooper died and I still remember mm. them explaining it to Big Bird. And I don't want to bring it down for everybody because, but if you're of a certain age, that is how you learned about death. Right. And I don't know another puppet that could have done that. I don't know too many actors who could have pulled that off. And they pulled it off with a giant yellow puppet on stilts. He, you know, he's he's the goat. Way to go, Big Bird. Even though you're a bird, you're still the goat. He's a big bird. Like that's just cool. Like think of all the things he can do: roller skate, ice skate, exactly. Dance, swim, sing. He does poetry. Like though, I do. You know, I, I I do have to admit, I like the interplay of Bert and Ernie. That is a good call. I. I'm always a Bert and Ernie fan and will not knock either one of them because Bert teaches people that you're allowed to be boring and there are boring people out there and Bert is <laughs> your hero. You learn it early on. Well, for me, like you said, uh, on the Muppet show, it's, it's starts and ends with animal though. I, I do give an honorable, honorable mention to Sam, the Eagle, who I think is very underrated. A huge fan of Sam the Eagle. Yeah, on Sesame Street, uh, I've always been the partial. Counts, pretty good. counts is pretty good, too. Yeah, the counts pretty good, but I've always been partial to Snuffleupagus. Who we all understood as children was an imaginary friend. It was the parents who didn't understand that he was an imaginary friend. Right. Stupid parents. They never <laughs> understand. Will Smith was right. <laughs> Finally, Crackles wants to know, the zombie apocalypse happened, and you have to choose five and the Valley Shook commenters as your survival group. Who do you choose, and why? Commenters. That's what it God, does. That's a lot of. That's a lot of people. I know. I thought it was like I thought it was like writers. I was like, okay, maybe I can give like an answer on this one. <laughs> commenters. <laughs> Even though he's a writer, we're still taking Zach because you need someone to cook. That's, that was my first choice too. That's the first thing I thought. Of. <laughs> no matter who else yeah, gets picked. Every group, every everybody's group should have Zach in it. Yeah, and then you just pick UMC, USMC Tiger four times because he's a marine. <laughs> Done. I'm out. It's our best shot. Uh, yeah, sure. No, I think there's a couple. I'm, I'm gonna. I don't want to say anything because I'm gonna forget people who like comment on my stuff and that. And are super nice to me, but uh, a couple guys that 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 I, I notice always commenting like Ellis Ujano and Mike D Tiger and those type of people. Like you guys are great commenters and keeps keep commenting because I like reading it while I'm supposed to be working. That is it for the questions. Well, in that case, we're all ready for 
after a big win, let's all go out, party, and watch us destroy Mississippi State at a reasonable hour. <laughs> and then we'll get ready for our next hate week against Auburn. So isn't it nice how the schedule work, works out? So good night and go Tigers. Je vais raconter